0: Hello and welcome to my podcast, Everyday Sublime, the podcast that sheds light on yin yoga and meditation. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm glad you're here. As a yin yoga and meditation teacher and trainer, as well as a licensed acupuncturist, My intention is to offer an in-depth exploration of the intersections between yin yoga, Chinese medicine, and meditation. When this episode goes live, we'll have just crossed the summer solstice in the calendar, and I thought it would be a good time to offer some mid-year reflections. I hope these reflections find application to your own work and practice, and that they provide a departure point for further exploration. In this episode, I'll be following up on my attempt to find a saner relationship to digital technology. As well, I'll also be introducing the challenging topic of abuse in yoga and meditation communities. In many ways, these reflections will just begin to scratch the surface of these enormous topics, but I hope they resonate with you and offer helpful considerations. And so, without further ado, I offer you some mid-year reflections. Okay, at the beginning of this season, I shared some personal reflections about a meditation retreat that I attended in December, as well as some thoughts about my own struggles to find a better relationship to digital technology. And in general, I should say that with the podcast, my plan is to punctuate some of the interview series that I do um, with occasional reflective episodes like this. At some stage, these may morph into what Sam Harris refers to as a Ask Me Anything episode. But for now, we will just call them General Reflections. And many listeners, in response to the previous episode of this nature, expressed their own struggles and difficulties in managing their relationship to digital technology. So I know I'm not alone. But in this episode, I want to follow up on that topic and offer a kind of field report with some potential ideas and tips for you. Uh, But before moving into that topic or returning to that topic, I want to also set up the stage. I want to set the stage for the next interview series that I'll be doing, since that topic um, is abuse in the yoga world. And this topic moves beyond the sort of self defined scope of the podcast, which focuses on yin yoga, Chinese medicine, and meditation. My guest will be Matthew Remsky, who for the last several years has been working extremely hard as an independent journalist uncovering claims and instances of physical, sexual, and psychological abuse in the yoga and meditation world. Matthew has done an extraordinary job, along with many others, to initiate what feels like a powerful reform movement within the yoga and Buddhist culture. And while our yin yoga community may seem relatively clean of such controversy, I think it's extremely important for everyone practicing and teaching in this space to be aware of the dynamics and abuses that have gone on so that they can be mitigated or prevented in the future. Matthew's new book, which we discussed in his interview, is called Practice and All is Coming. subtitle is Abuse, Cult Dynamics, and Healing in Yoga and Beyond. The title is taken from a phrase that Patabi Joyce would often repeat, and the core of the book focuses on the sexual and physical abuses committed by Patabi Joyce. As well, it also looks at the institutional enablement that allowed for these abuses to continue for over three decades. It's really a staggering book, which, as Remsky warns at the beginning, may stir a wide range of physical and emotional reactions. Now, over the last few years that I've been following Matthew's work, I've more or less sat quietly on the sidelines, refraining from any kind of public statement on these topics. And I've rationalized my silence with the view that these abuses aren't necessarily happening in my own house. In other words, they're not happening in my own community. But the more I listen to the testimony of victims, the more I realize that my default of silence was a kind of sin of omission. In other words, my silence on the matter puts me into a de facto position of both silencing the victims as well as contributing to a network of complicity that enables this kind of toxicity in groups in the first place. And the problem with my silence became even clearer to me whenever I would teach in a studio that continued to venerate Patabi Joyce. And that veneration would be carried out simply by putting his photograph up somewhere in the room that would hold him up and in effect silence those that he had hurt. And I realized I just didn't feel comfortable being part of that dynamic anymore. So one of the many consequences of being exposed to uh, Matthew's work and his analysis of these dynamics is that I have now, uh, for better or worse, made a professional decision to withdraw my own teaching from any studio that continues to tacitly support Patavi Joyce or for that matter, any of the many bad actors that we're aware of in the yoga world. My feeling is that the studios that do offer Ashtanga Yoga need, at a bare minimum, they need to have a clear public statement which both denounces Joyce's behavior and distances themselves from the institutional enablement that allowed for that behavior. And in the absence of that kind of clear, open, public transparent statement, the result is that the victims simply continue to be silenced. Now, of course, the problems in Ashtanga Yoga are not unique to Ashtanga Yoga. The potential for abuse lurks in the shadows of many contemporary spiritual scenes, and those dynamics exist in a growing lamentable number of communities gripped by revelation after revelation. Matthew's book is a fantastic resource on many levels. On one level, he platforms the searing firsthand testimony of the victims who are able to bravely come forward, which, given the backdrop of rape culture, is no small feat. But the book also offers trenchant analysis of the dynamics that contributed to the abuse and to the degrees of deception and subterfuge at play in these dynamics. And the final section of the book outlines ideas of best practices for teachers, organizations, and students to move forward in a way that helps create safer practice environments for everyone. I think this is a super important topic for everyone to be aware of in this particular space, so, stay tuned. I'm eager to share my interview with Matthew, and I encourage you to check out his blog at MatthewRemsky.com. Okay, so in addition to reflecting a bit on Matthew Remsky's new book, I also wanted to circle back to the topic of digital distraction. There are some great books out this year on the topic, notably Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport, and the second book, which I think just came out more recently, called How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. Central to these books is a concern about how our attentions have been colonized and hacked by gadgets and algorithmic technology that's specifically designed to keep our attention hooked to the very gadget or platform that we're on. Now, all too frequently, when I hear people, including myself, talk about the struggle with managing the relationship to screens, It is often expressed as a character flaw or a weakness of the person where someone might say something like, quote, I'm just not able to be more disciplined or so and so has such an addiction to their gadget. In other words, the problem is more a user problem or user error. It's not a problem with the gadget or platform itself. But I'm reminded uh, of a wise phrase I heard a while back. I can't quite remember the source. I think it possibly might come from Chip and Dan Heath, the Heath brothers, who who wrote a book called Switch. But the idea is this, something like, what might seem like a person problem is often a situation problem. So if, like me, you struggle to find that elusive balance of using digital tech without being used by it, it might be helpful to take a closer look at the situation. And inspired by Cal Newport's book *Digital Minimalism*, I drafted a clear operations uh, protocol as a way of focusing my digital life. So part of what this involved is that I changed the display settings in my phone so that my screen was what they call grayscale, more or less black and white. Um, apparently colors, especially red notifications, increase uh, the strength of the hook or addictive pull of the, the technology or gadget. I also took email off my phone entirely. I instilled a daily tech curfew from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. each day, whereby there would be no screens at all through those 12-hour that 12-hour window. And I also, advice of others, I I batched my email, I batched when I would do email, to twice a day. And all these strategies worked pretty well for most of February this year. And during that month, I truly felt like I had reclaimed a way of being that I had lost for the last 10 years or more. But then, after February, I went back on the road, teaching in Europe, as well as parts of the United States... And while traveling with the need to uh, re-enable email on my phone, the old habits quickly crept back in, and that lovely sense of being that I had, had had in February, this deteriorated, and I could feel my nervous system once again begin to twitch with that compulsive, obsessive need to check messages or emails. Now at the moment, I feel like I'm managing it a bit better again. But I'm managing it not because I have more willpower. Rather, I think I have a better sense of how design influences my use. And by design, I mean, A, how you design what services and apps, etc. you have on your gadgets. And B, how your external environment or external environmental design either supports or derails your intended protocols of use with regards to these things. So this is by no means an exhaustive list, but I have four sort of principles that I'm applying to my tech life now that have been really helpful. And I would love to hear if you have other ideas yourself, or if you try these and find them helpful, let me know. But the first thing would be that it's really important to have a very, very clear protocol of operation. So I'll be talking about that a little bit. This one thing that I was surprised by, but I found to be extremely helpful, was to uh, tether my devices to a particular space in my apartment. I'll say more about that. The third aspect of this four part strategy is to review and renew your commitment to the strategies themselves. So I'll say more about that. And lastly, the fourth aspect to the strategy is to replace digital behaviors with more meaningful, enlivening, engaging analog activities. So let me go through these one by one for a bit now. The first aspect of the strategy is to have a clear operations protocol. And this is something I found very helpful. It's very helpful to have a very clear outline of operations. Simply having a vague intention to have quote-unquote less screen time, or to cut down on email per se, this tends not to work so well. When your operations protocol is too vague, it leaves too many questions open to your conscious mind. Do I go into an email? Do I answer this now? Do I check my phone? And particularly in those moments when you find yourself with free time or downtime, the vague intentions Tend to allow one, or at least myself, to slip back into old bad habits and behaviors. As the authors Chip and Dan Heath write about in their book, Switch How to Change When Change is Hard, they say it's really important to give yourself, or to give your conscious, rational self, very clear marching orders. Otherwise, it's all too easy to get bogged down in reinventing the wheel and rethinking things every day. So this is why I drafted a very precise operations protocol that was simple enough and specific enough to remember easily. My protocol was quite simple with three parts. It involved first a tech fast from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. each day or a tech curfew where I wouldn't use any screen or device within that window of time, so 12 hours off. The second part was uh, a schedule of emailing, so I would check or answer email twice a day at both 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., roughly about a half hour each time. And the third piece regarded social media, where I would stay off social media with the exception of checking in with any notifications or things or posting things I needed to do on Tuesdays and Fridays at 4 p.m. So very, very simple. Seven a daily curfew for twelve hours, seven p.m. to seven a.m. Answering emails ten a.m. and four p.m. on most days, and then social media limited to Tuesdays and Fridays at four. Now, as specific as that outline for a protocol of use is, I also don't obsess about it. If I'm off um, by a day or an hour or two here or there, I don't lose sleep over it. The whole point of the operations protocol is to have some specific guidelines in place so I don't need to think about them anymore. Freed from trying to work out or figure out when I'll be using technology frees my mind up to be more focused and engaged with the meaningful work, activity, or even non-activity I might be working on. And one interesting observation I want to make about this protocol is that even though it seems strict and rigid and and uh, there's actually not that much time allocated to things like email and social media things that are often all consuming or overwhelming for people the paradox is that i found that when i'm successful at following this when i actually batch email and batch social media activity i'm dramatically more efficient uh, and spending spending just much much less time on these services now the caveat is that if you're waiting for an email from me uh, it will be coming soon okay so as many folks in this field uh, looking at technology it's stranglehold on us as many folks have recommended it's important to have crystal clear operations for how you will use your devices but the second part of my strategy is connected to design specifically external design and i call it reconnecting the cord i'm old enough Uh, to remember what it was like when the telephone was literally connected to the wall with a cord. And yes, I do remember rotary dialing too. But for the purposes of this reflection, it occurred to me that resisting the compulsive use of technology is all the more difficult because of the near constant temptation made possible by the mobility of technology. With mobilization, every conceivable space is now vulnerable to the colonization of technology. There's ample evidence of this wherever you look. But a simple remedy for home is to establish what I call a tech use zone or a kind of tech station at which you are free to use your technology, but only, and this is the important thing, but only use the technology at that station or at that space. In other words you're reconnecting the cord thereby curtailing the limitless ways to use or be used by your gadgets as an example of this I now try to leave my laptop phone and iPad at my desk in my office at home this is my tech zone everywhere else that is the kitchen the living room the bedroom the bathroom these are all now tech free more or less And the benefits of this are many, but I would sum them up with the palpable, improved sense of being I feel. I feel more present, calm, and internally just much, much quieter. And the elusive boundary between work life and home life is just much easier to establish. Now, of course, you may have noticed that I said I try to leave my tech at my desk in my office, tethered to the proverbial cord. I try and as you might imagine I do fall short on that commitment from time to time which brings me to the third part of my recommendations number three is the importance of reviewing and renewing your commitments it's really important to review these commitments and renew your commitment to them on a regular basis falling back and slipping into old patterns is simply inevitable the question is How do you reset and realign with your bigger intentions? Having specific scheduled times, like a weekly check-in with yourself, to review how your protocol is working can be really helpful. I find spending 10 minutes on a Sunday afternoon or on a Monday morning that this provides this important reset. Things often get sloppy over the weekend, and this is a great time to reset and start again. And another support to this is to simply write out your protocol of operations and post it somewhere visible. I keep mine posted on a corner of my desk and find this helpful whenever I'm trying to do work and feel the pull of email or web browsing taking over. Also, every now and then, I like to rewrite this protocol, giving it a fresh facelift, keeping it clear and sharp in my mind. Now, the fourth piece of this strategy is also very important, and this is to replace digital distraction with meaningful analog activities. It's not just a question of removing or limiting your digital behaviors, but we also need to fill in that space with engaging aspects of real life. In his book, Digital Minimalism, Cal Newport discusses the importance of old-school analog hobbies, such as reading. Reading real books, playing a musical instrument, or gardening, or playing sports, or cooking, or going on hikes. Jenny O'Dell, in her great book, How to Do Nothing, also makes the compelling argument for doing, surprise, surprise, absolutely nothing. Which, in the age of digital distraction, is actually a monumental kind of something. And Odell also advocates that we need to replace the acronym FOMO or fear of missing out with something something much more positive she calls it JOMO the joy of missing out really appreciating the joys uh, that come when we step back from our digital life and reconnect with the world around us and that's really the whole point here by putting good boundaries around technology We can support the conditions in our life for deeper joy, deeper meaning, and deeper value that a life on screens will simply never provide. I'm reminded of what an American monk, Tinnisro Bhikkhu, once said about the Buddhist training precepts, a list of ethical practices similar to the yamas and niyamas. He said, many people tend to think of the training precepts as rules of behavior, like the Ten Commandments. Don't kill, don't steal, don't cheat, don't lie, don't booze. But really, these precepts are forms of restraint that make a deeper kind of freedom possible. And it's that deeper freedom and quality of being that appeals to me. Now, on the face of it, my reflecting on these topics in this episode, the, the abuse in the yoga world and the, my own addictive struggles with technology, These might seem like very different topics and themes, but beneath the surface, they share a common theme, at least in my eyes, and that common theme is a theme of boundaries, specifically good boundaries. How do we establish boundaries in our spiritual communities and in our life to promote safety and thriving, mitigating future abuse and harm? These are very important themes to me, as I'm sure they are for you, and i am reasonably confident that i'll be returning to these themes again in future episodes for now if you're interested in any of these topics and exploring further i'll leave a list of recommended books in the show notes as well as my own four-part tech strategy for your own consideration adaptation and hopefully some form of integration so those are some of the reflections I've had over the last few months and I do hope they stir some valuable reflection and investigation on your part. In the next episode of Everyday Sublime I'll launch the first installment of my interview series with Matthew Remsky. At this moment as many of us struggle to make sense of the epidemic levels of abuse in the world, especially within spiritual communities, Matthew is really a leading light, modeling how to listen to testimony of victims, how to sharpen our individual and collective discernment, and how to install best practices to mitigate future abuse. I very much look forward to sharing that series with you soon. And in the meantime, if you're interested in attending a yin yoga training or silent meditation retreat with me and Terry Coburn, please check out our calendar of upcoming events. Our 2020 calendar is more or less fixed at this point, so you can hopefully better plan out the next steps in your yin education. Just check out www.yinyogaschool.com. That's yinyogaschool.com. As always, thanks so much for your enthusiasm for yin yoga and your support of the podcast, and I'll look forward to seeing you in the next episode.